The reading is from Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 26. The page number is 1172. Galatians chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. This is the word of the Lord. And I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge the authority of your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to uh, guide and steer our minds so that it might be uh, illuminated and that discovering the truth, we might apply it to our lives. Amen. I think it was Mahatma Gandhi, who was the, uh, the great Indian independence leader, who said something to the effect that Christians must look more saved if I am to believe in their saviour. Well, 70 years on, we still live in a very pragmatic world. People will want to ask the question, really, what practical difference does it make if I were to become a Christian? They need to actually see that in order to be motivated enough to look further into the Christian faith. Sure, that's how I became a Christian, and many of you did. It was you were impressed by the lives of individual Christians. You may have had some who were not good examples of being a Christian, but you had, a, had one or two, enough to make you think, yep, they've got something. It does make a real difference. I will inquire. And Paul seems to be very aware of um, that in his day. Most of his letters come in two parts. There's the theory, and then there's the practice. And Galatians is no exception. And this last chapter, chapter 6 of Galatians, is, I suppose, the place where he answers the question that he may have been put, well, okay, what practical difference does being a Christian make? And today we're going to sort of take it in two sections. There's the 
5.26 to 6.5, which is all about how a Christian should and shouldn't treat other Christians. And then there's 6.6 to 6.10, which brings into play the principle of what you sow, you reap. So, 5.26, let's have a look at this together. How not to treat your fellow Christians. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. To be conceited means to be full of our own self-importance. Unfortunately, we can, some of us, have a tendency to delusions of grandeur and have an unhealthy tendency to compare ourselves with other people. Towards towards those who we uh, think we are better, we provoke the Apostle writes. The word apparently means to to challenge to a contest. So, of course, we can demonstrate our superiority and boost our own egos. And if we discover somebody who is obviously better than us, then we can be prone to envy. Elsewhere in, for example, in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says that actually what we are to have is to have a sober assessment of ourselves. We must neither think too highly of ourselves nor, in fact, too lowly of ourselves. Now, that kind of balance perspective of oneself is quite difficult to achieve, that sober assessment. But all the way through both Romans and Galatians, Paul's been telling us how, in fact, we can achieve it. And it's the cross and justification by faith that produces in us a sober assessment. And knowing where we stand gives us a psychological security, which means that we don't forever have to make comparisons with others. Let me explain. If we're prone to think too highly of ourselves, the cross reminds us that we are sinful and that we couldn't save ourselves but rather Christ had to come and save and rescue us. On the other hand, if we think too lowly of ourselves, then again the cross is the answer, because the cross says that we are significant to Jesus Christ, so significant that he was prepared to come from heaven and experience all that he did experience, so that... uh, He would die for our sins that we might gain eternal life. It's the comparison with Jesus Christ that counts. That is what matters. So we don't go around saying, I'm better than you and I'll prove it. And nor do we go around saying, you're better than me and I resent it. What we do is realise that both of us are people of importance. God made us and Christ died for us. And both of us have the joy and privilege of serving each other in the Christian community. Sure, we're differently gifted, but even our talent, even amongst the most talented people, that talent is ultimately God-given. So there's no place for any kind of petty rivalry. 
Now that's a wonderfully secure place to be in and an absolutely essential one for harmony in the new community. And if we are to be of help and benefit to each other. So that's how we're not to behave to one another in the Christian community. Positively, how are we to treat each other? Well, we look at that in verses, six, uh, verses 2 to 5 in chapter 6. We'll come back to verse 1 in a moment. Verse 2 says, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now that statement not only assumes that we all, even though we're Christians, have burdens, but that we are not meant to bravely soldier on solo. That kind of attitude is called stoicism. It's the kind of grin and bear it. I can cope. I don't need any help. Well, you do a little Bible study on burdens, and this is what you find. You find that we are to cast our burdens of sin and guilt on Christ, because he alone can actually deal with them. Nobody else ultimately can. We're also to cast our burdens on God the Father because we read that he cares for us. But so often his way of helping is through other people, through the friendships that we have within the Christian fellowship. Paul found that. He was at one particular point a bit agitated about how his letter to the Corinthians was going to be received. And he was quite a long way from Corinth at the time. And, um, of course, he sat and waited for news. And how did God kind of lift that burden of concern that the apostle had? Well, by sending Titus from Corinth with news of how they had received the letter. Now, in Christian fellowship, we support one another. We share one another's burdens. Now, the Judaizers who are in Galatia, they were into legalism, rule upon rule upon rule. And they were imposing these kind of legalistic burdens on Christians. Carrying one another's burdens actually fulfills the law of Christ. Because it is loving our neighbour, which sums up a vast chunk of the law. Now again in verse 3, the conceited person, the one who thinks themselves to be something but who, the Apostle says, is in fact nothing. They fail to share the burdens of others because they look down their noses at them. I'm sure we've all encountered this kind of person. The kind of person who is so full of themselves, who believes their own publicity, who sort of goes around. If you're in any organisation, ask the receptionist or... The, the chief boss's kind of secretary, what their view of such a person is, you'll get a very accurate impression. And that kind of person, I can picture some I've encountered in my life, you know, they do believe their own publicity, and you can just see they're just waiting to implode, because that's what happens to them. And they publicly fall, and fall in a bad way. Well, verse 4 tells us that Instead of looking at others, we should look at our own actions. Presumably, 
to make a comparison with Jesus Christ. And then if we see moral and spiritual improvement, we can be well pleased. So a periodic self-examination is actually quite a good thing to do. Once or twice here I've recommended John Wesley's 21 questions of uh, self-examination. I'll just read some of them to you if you want to pick one. I've just put some copies on the reception. He asks himself, in fact he also asks the small groups that he set up, am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am better than I am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Am I honest in all my acts and words or do I exaggerate? Do I confidentially pass on to another what was told me in confidence? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work or habits? And he winds it up with, do I grumble and complain constantly? And finally, is Christ real to me? It's very profitable. I'm not one for navel-gazing, but it is profitable sometimes to do a kind of self-assessment of oneself, to kind of, as it were, hover above oneself and try and look at oneself detached. And then we allow God's Spirit to speak to us as we ask ourselves those questions. In verse 5, Paul reminds us that um, there is one burden, though, that we are not able to share, one which we have to carry alone, and it's the responsibility for our own life. For we stand accountable on the day of judgment to the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one can stand there instead of us. So instead of assessing others, we should assess ourselves to make sure that we are ready for the assessment that really counts, the one that is to come. Well, back to verse 1. Paul gives a rather concrete example of how we're to treat each other in a particular case. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. Now in chapter 5 of Galatians, um, Paul writes of how we are to keep in step with the Spirit, to walk through this life with him side by side with us. Sin here is literally to step aside. In other words, to get out of step with the Holy Spirit. And the best way to keep in step with the Holy Spirit is to apply what we learn in the Word of God. The word caught here has the sense of surprise attached to its meaning. So in other words, it's more likely that someone is caught in a particular one-off lapse rather than a persistent, settled, constant, sinning pattern. And restore is a word that was also used for setting a fractured bones. So, if you see a Christian, you know, seemingly out of step, what's to be done, who's to do it, and how is it to be done? So you may, for example, be a house group leader, 
Or you may have an old Christian friend who's not where they once were. So what are you to do? Well, according to Paul, you're not to do nothing. You might be tempted to think that it's in one sense none of your business. But that is the easy option. You're not to despise them or condemn them with a sense of moral superiority. That's a self-righteous danger to degenerate into. You're not to report them to the, the leadership, or at least not at first. And nor are you to gossip. That's what he says. You are to restore him. Matthew 18 gives a procedure to follow, the objective being to get the wanderer back on track. Well, if that's what is to be done, who's to do it? Well, Paul says it's the spiritual. Well, they're not some kind of sort of elite. They're just those who are keeping in step with the Spirit, those who are obeying the Word of God in their life. Now, fortunately, most of us Christians are incredibly reluctant to interfere in the lives of others. And that is a good sign. I don't think we're in danger of uh, messing this up. But if someone is fairly close to you, that you have a relationship with them, and you see them kind of uh, going off track, then a gentle word at the right time, after prayerful thought, could well be of great help. And the third thing we learn from Paul is, how is it to be done? And the answer is gently, he says. That's why we are to watch ourselves, because there's such a temptation to think ourselves superior. And that would be a sin. That would be a sin of self-righteousness. Now there's a great advantage still in being in the Anglican ministry. We do, we are in a sense forced to engage with society, even if we're tempted to retreat from it at times. But there are also some disadvantages. Principally, they are to accommodate to the ways of the world and to compromise the Christian faith in the process. Now, I, as you know, I wasn't brought up an Anglican. But when I decided to go into um, the Anglican ministry, two of my non-Anglican friends, in the nicest possible way, said that they would come and do me over if I were to compromise on the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And they are still amongst my best friends today. And although I might only see them once or twice a year, I'm sure they'd do it. And it would be valuable, because I know that uh, it would not be easy for them to do so, and I know that they would have my best interests at heart. And we all need friends who would do that. We all need close friends in Christian fellowship within our own church, or because we're so mobile today, they may be friends from quite a long time ago. We are our brother's keeper. Not heavy-handed, we're to be motivated for their best interests. And we're prepared to risk our friendship in order to tell the truth. 
So I don't want people in our fellowship to be without friends and without one or two close friendships. Now I can't force or engineer that at all, although people think I kind of arrange marriages and all sorts of things, but I cannot actually do any of those kind of things. But I hope that you will take the initiative that we have of having things like prayer triplets and having small groups to provide so that you can cultivate friendships. Such friendships are a means, after all, of helping you keep in step with the Spirit and not wander off course. Now, mention of cultivation brings us to the second section of what we've had read to us this morning, verses 6, 6 to 10, and the principle of sowing and reaping. It's a principle derived from the world of farming. Sow barley, get barley. Sow lots, get lots. Sow good seeds, get a good crop. But the same is true morally and spiritually. Verse 7, a man reaps what he sows. So if you sow lots of good barley seed, you will get a bumper barley crop. If you scatter carelessly lots of wild oats, you will get lots of trouble. This is inevitable. Don't let us deceive ourselves, Paul says. Don't think God is daft either. What's true in farming is true in life. And he gives three examples where it shows itself. In Christian ministry, verse 6, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. In 1 Corinthians 9, 11, Paul had written, if we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? So if a Christian community is starting, then once it sort of grows a bit, it may well decide that it wants to set aside and one or a number of its people to study and to pray, and so to learn and then to teach others. And as they teach, as they share what they have learnt to their brothers and sisters, those brothers and sisters should benefit and in return share what they have so the teacher benefits. The second example is in holiness. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit, from the spirit will reap eternal life. It's as if life is compared to two fields, the sinful nature and the spiritual nature. And we have to ask ourselves, which one are we cultivating? Which one do we want to blossom? The seeds are our thoughts and our deeds, which if we allow to take root in our lives will germinate and eventually produce a harvest. What that harvest is depends, of course, on what seed it is that we sow. If we allow grudges, grievances, impurities, self-pitying to linger in our minds, they will grow. If, on the other hand, we allow good thoughts, God's thoughts, to settle and take root, we will produce a good harvest. It's all about self-discipline. There's an old adage, sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. So a character 
reaper destiny. Many today are far too uh, laissez-faire and lackadaisical to travel very far in the Christian life. We just don't have enough self-discipline. And if prayer and Bible study, if worship and teaching on the Lord's Day are some of the means of grace, then they should be regular and important parts of our schedule. They are designed to help us reap eternal life and avoid destruction. And the third example of this principle is being rewarded for well-doing, verses 9 and 10. Let us not grow, become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. The active Christian service is really quite hard work. You can very easily get discouraged and tempted to give up and do something easier. I recently sort of reconnected with um, the, the, the guy who'd been my vicar when I'd been at university, Michael Green. And amongst being a vicar, he'd previously been a theological college principal. He went on to be a professor in Canadian universities, etc. But what he really had a heart for was doing evangelistic missions in universities. Now, they can be incredibly hard work. After all, you've got meetings at different times of the day, starting at breakfast and finishing probably at 11 or midnight. You've got sort of disorganized but well-meaning Christian students who forget to book a hall where you're supposed to be speaking or they just don't get around to praying for things or inviting friends to. It's exasperating. But he's 85 and he still does it. Every year he does university missions with another friend of mine called Lindsay Brown, who's my age. And those two, they've been, Lindsay's been doing it for 40 years, Michael's been doing it for 65 years, written about 30-odd books in the process. You think, why does he keep doing it? Well, you'd never guess he's 85 to look at him, but, um, but he does. He perseveres. Why? Because there will be a harvest. Some people will come through to faith. On our more modest level, those of you who've been involved over the years in Christianity Explored, sometimes you know, you'll have a table and uh, get off to a good start the first week. Next week, somebody, one of your table decides, no, it's not for them. You carry on the course. I mean, some of the people will be there each week, that keeps you going, but others will be kind of here today, gone tomorrow, here next week. And why do you persevere? You know, you're there every week and you're preparing for it because you know that hopefully at the end of it, God will call those who are his to himself, to faith in Christ. That's why you carry on, because you have faith that the harvest will come. Now, Paul doesn't actually specify the harvest here, but um, the harvest could be some other kinds of examples. It may be through the satisfaction of helping someone in a time of particular need. It might be that we are putting a break on the moral kind of decline of uh, the world around us and so preserve the place as a better place to live. It may be that we will reap a reward in heaven, probably in terms of being given greater responsibilities in the new creation. 
It may be the satisfaction of being involved with a group of people who are on earth, increasingly, though fortingly, becoming closer to what is a biblical community. So Paul has illustrated the principle, what you sow, you reap. The teacher reaps a living, the sinner reaps destruction, the believer reaps eternal life. The kind and helpful reap satisfaction in this life and a reward in eternity. Now, as with any principle, we can ignore it, or we can resist it, or we can cooperate with it. If we want a good harvest, we have to sow good seed. And then in due time, we'll reap the benefits. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, from these um, last words of the Apostle Paul to the Christians at Galatia, we, uh, we pick up how we're to treat each other and how we're not to treat each other. We pray for humility and sober assessment. We pray for those who are close to us and who wander. We pray that we might prayerfully and gently remind them of where they once were and where they should be and help them back on track. And in sowing and reaping, we pray that we might sow good thoughts, godly thoughts, and we pray that they might germinate in our lives and blossom and flourish, not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of others, we pray. And we thank you that you do reward us in well-doing. Amen.